Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm Mike Brown, author, nerd, and host of the Dark Patine podcast. Join me and Morgan Knudsen, author, paranormal researcher, and host of the TV shows Paranormal 911 and Haunted Hospitals, as we take you on a journey for the curious about the unseen, the mysterious, and the incredible things happening in the world about us. Welcome to Supernatural Circumstances. Sometimes what you think you see isn't what you've seen. Take, for example, the Hammersmith ghost murder case of 1804. That case set a legal precedent in the UK regarding self-defense, that someone could be held liable for their actions even if they were the consequence of a mistaken belief. Near the end of 1803, many people claimed to have seen or been attacked by a ghost in the Hammersmith area of London, a ghost believed by locals to be the spirit of a suicide victim. On the 3rd of January, 1804, a 29-year-old excise officer named Francis Smith, a member of one of the armed patrols set up in the wake of the reports, shot and killed a bricklayer, Thomas Millwood, mistaking the white clothes of Millwood's trade for a shroud of ghostly apparition. Smith was found guilty of murder and sentenced to death, later commuted to one year's hard labor. The case remained a legal precedent until 1984, when a man who'd mistakenly believed he was aiding someone in intervening in what he thought was a crime had injured an apparent assailant, but that person was actually the one attempting to apprehend a suspected thief who was fleeing. The man was subsequently convicted of assault, causing bodily harm, but his conviction was overturned with one Lord Justice saying, quote, Even if the jury come to the conclusion that the mistake was an unreasonable one, if the defendant may genuinely have been laboring under it, he is entitled to rely upon it. There have been numerous other episodes of what one might call mass hysteria over the years, even recently. Starting in August of 2016 in the United States, Canada, and subsequently in other countries and territories, there began reports of people disguised as evil clowns in out-of-place settings, such as near forests and schools. As the sightings ramped up, so did scores of online rumors of a supposed planned clown-initiated purge or mass attack, which was believed set to take place on Halloween in 2016. Stores like Target in the U.S. and Canadian Tire here removed clown costumes from their shelves. Employees of theme parks were instructed to remove any horror costumes and makeup before leaving work, lest the possibility of being mistaken for an evil clown by roving bands of vigilantes. Even governments took the threat seriously. 
On October 12th, the Russian embassy in London issued a warning for Russian and British citizens because of the clown scare. And on October 13th, Fijian police warned people against involvement in the events. The village of Memramcook in New Brunswick asked residents not to dress up as clowns on Halloween. The attacks, of course, never came. The only reports I could find of any clown-related violence that year was of a family from Florida who was attacked on October 31st, 2016 by a group of approximately 20 people in clown masks and masks styled after the Purge movie. No arrests were made. But what happens when an entire Iowa town thinks they've seen something otherworldly? Was everyone in the town a liar? That's highly doubtful. Or perhaps, did they all really see what they said they saw? Morgan will explain the town's encounters with a creature that has since been dubbed the Van Meter Visitor. Later, this episode's guest, Chad Lewis, who's written a book on the subject, joins us to tell us more. Here's Morgan. Monsters and ghosts litter our history. Dotting I's and crossing T's of legends, lore, and the supernatural. In Western legend, especially in the wilds of small American towns, often the supernatural is clear, but the circumstances are not. Sometimes the circumstances are more bizarre than the science or the answers can tell us, and the mystery remains nearly 120 years later. In a tiny Iowa town known as Van Meter, the year 1903 brought a stranger to the streets and skies of the quiet homes and businesses. Sometimes it takes a lifetime to change a town, but in Van Meter, it took this otherworldly visitor less than a week to change the lives and strike terror into the lives of the residents. Here, in this quaint place, you can unearth the tale of a legend before it dies with the old-timers of Van Meter, Iowa, the tale of the Van Meter Visitor. In the fall of 1903, a coal mine was being dug. As the company dug eagerly deeper and deeper into the earth, locals began to wonder if they unleashed something far beyond what any of the men had bargained for. What could only be described now as a humanoid pterodactyl a huge, featherless, leathery-winged monster with a long beak or face was seen sitting on the rooftops in the downtown Main Street. Half-human, half-animal, with a unique and startling feature. A bright light, shining, gleaming like an LED spotlight from its forehead. A light no one in 1903 had ever seen the likes of before. It glared into windows, blinding shopkeeps and residents as it hunted and searched for some unknown target. It came with a horrific stench and moved at speeds never seen or recorded in any known animal at the time. Shots were fired each time, first by implement dealer Eugene Griffith as it flew across building tops. The town doctor and bank cashier, Peter Dunn, separately saw the creature and again opened fire. At no point did the creature flinch or falter at the gunshots creating even more terror in the residents of Van Meter. Dunn even took a plaster cast of the great three-toed tracks. The hardware store owner, O.V. White, was awakened from a dead sleep a night later 
to see the creature perched atop a telephone pole. He took aim and fired with no effect. This awakened Sidney Gregg, who had been sleeping in a store nearby. Gregg said the monster hopped like a kangaroo. A high school teacher reported the same type of odd movement from the monster. Terrified, the town was indeed under siege by a winged demon. The townsfolk did what they knew how to do. They rallied, pitchforks and torches in hand, and conspired to march on the now-abandoned coal mine. Believing this was the origin of the monster's appearance because of an odd noise J.L. Pratt Jr. heard coming from the bowels of the mine, they vowed to close its doors forever with one blast of dynamite. Presently, the noise opened up again, as though Satan and a regiment of imps were coming forth to battle, according to the article in the Des Moines Daily News on October 3, 1903. Two creatures presented themselves, standing to meet the charge. When they saw the armed threat, they sailed away in a brilliant light, only to return the next morning to rally an attack. The reception they received, stated the paper, would have sunk the Spanish fleet, but aside from the unearthly noise and odor, they did not seem to mind it, but slowly it descended into the shaft of the old mine. They disappeared into the deep dark of Iowa. Years later, across time and into another state, another creature was seen. In 2015, in the small town of Stillman Valley in the state of Illinois, two friends were driving down a back road between 3 and 4 a.m. when they saw what they described as a 7 to 10 foot tall winged monster sweep out of nowhere in front of their car. As they swerved to miss it, they were quick to glimpse at what they described as a giant gargoyle. A year later, it was seen another two times on the same back road at the same time in the morning. In the last decade, Chicago has been the high point of these strange occurrences with these odd winged monsters. Even busy airports are not immune from the sightings. As we most associate the creature's sightings with remote and faraway places, these winged creatures often look to be seen by many, and when there is a rash of sightings, they are often out in the open. For the last decade, O'Hare Airport has been the center of these anomalies and now has dubbed it the O'Hare Mothman or the Chicago Mothman. It's reported it's between 6 to 10 feet tall with a 10-foot wingspan. It vaguely resembles an owl or a bat and has terrifying red eyes. It's also reported that the creature is covered in fur and also has leather-like skin and bat wings. Origins of what people dubbed Mothman are very unclear, but there are some reports as far back as the 1960s where some people in West Virginia have spotted the creature in the famous encounters of John Keel in Point Pleasant. This later became the Richard Gere film The Mothman Prophecies. In 2017, there were 55 sightings of this winged beast in Chicago, and in 2019, a truck driver was picking up a cargo shipment at the airport when he saw what he described as the Chicago Mothman. In his description, he stated it looked like a person with wings outstretched and flapping. In September of 2020, a U.S. Postal Service worker was leaving work at the airport and noticed what she initially thought was a tall man standing near her car. 
when she turned on her headlights, the coat that she thought the man was wearing wasn't a coat at all, but a giant set of imposing wings. As her headlights hit the monster, they illuminated red eyes and a ten-foot stature. It screamed at her car, outstretched its wings, and took flight. There are notable differences between the Van Meter visitor and the accounts of the Mothman, but these strange flying beasts have been reported throughout the world in every setting imaginable. Perhaps to get closer to the Van Meter visitor in description, we need to swing over to Arkansas in 2012. Flying out from underneath a bridge, a woman driving down the road in her car nearly hit a giant leathery-winged beast she could not identify. When the encounter was initially written off as another Mothman sighting, there were no red eyes on this creature, just bat-like claws, a large diamond-shaped flat head. The woman described the creature as gray in color, featherless, pointed beak, and a large head crest. No strange blazing light shone from this creature's forehead as it did with Van Meter, but the description was a lot closer. Many began referencing pterodactyls, the giant winged pterosaurs of the prehistoric periods that once glided through our skies as the living version of dragons. Could that even be possible? All of these encounters have distinct qualities and seem to differ from the visitor in various ways, yet compares in others. In yet another encounter, in February of 1976, two school teachers in San Antonio's Southside School District found themselves driving separate vehicles down a desolate road. The two identified a pair of what looked to be giant birds, with bony structures and wingspans stretching 15 to 20 feet. One of the teachers said it best fit the description of a pteranodon, something they could not explain. The director of the San Antonio Zoo commented once the story hit the media by saying, there's nothing in today's Texas that would be like that. I know nothing that looks like that, but I sure would like the two of them for the zoo. What exactly the teacher saw that day is unknown. Yet, during that time and in the years preceding, dozens of similar sightings have been reported in the San Antonio and Rio Grande Valley areas. Several sightings were reported in Texas, according to two San Benito police officers. One of the strangest reports came from a fellow who heard something slam into the side of his mobile home. When he went outside to investigate, he discovered a giant bird-like creature standing only four feet tall, but with bright eyes like silver dollars. The witness was adamant to reporters that this was not a bird and not of this world. Cryptozoologist and past supernatural circumstances expert Ken Gerhard believes these creatures are indeed possible. He states that if they exist, their home base has to be somewhere remote and largely unexplored, and there are plenty of places that fit the bill, such as the Sierra Nevada mountains of Mexico. While many skeptics chalk these encounters up to misidentification, it is difficult to believe that so many sightings can be dismissed as simply unfamiliar creatures. And we have to remember, people aren't stating that they have never seen anything like these creatures before. They are stating they look like pterosaurs. That's a big difference. Witnesses have indeed found a word to best describe them. It just doesn't fit into our book of known living animals. 
From a parapsychologist's perspective, we need to acknowledge that saying we've seen something that looks like a creature we have seen before in photos or drawings is far different than saying this looks like a purple polka-dotted people-eater, something we don't have any reference for at all. Large bird-type creatures have been present in the folklore of North America for years. Thunderbirds, giant supernatural birds, are present in many Native American stories and histories, including the Ojibwa and Algonquin cultures. Even in Mexico, we have the Lelechuza, a witch who is said to be able to transform into a giant owl-type monster. Cryptozoologist Jonathan Whitcomb, author of the book Modern Pterosaurs, recently published an article about the creatures, including new pterodactyl sightings in North Carolina. Whitcomb also wrote an extensive article on LivePterosaurs.com, which included several additional North Carolina sightings, as it has become a hotspot for sightings over the last number of years. They include, in Charlotte, North Carolina, a man and his cousin saw something bringing to his mind the word dragon. The man said, it looked like what I'd seen in a Jurassic Park movie. In Asheville, North Carolina, a lady saw a huge, black-winged creature fly very low over her car. It had no feathers, but sharp edges to its features. In Jacksonville, an eyewitness saw something huge flying in the sky. It looked like a pale, greenish-white and smooth skin. It appeared to have no feathers, and it had a tail with a diamond shape on the end. Matt Cartmill, professor of evolutionary anthropology at Duke University, said that it is highly unlikely people are seeing giant flying dinosaurs, but not impossible. I can't believe that if there were living pterosaurs in North America, three centuries of naturalists, explorers, farmers, hunters, trappers, and biologists would never have run across a single specimen, living or dead, Cartmill told Raleigh's News and Observer. I'd rank it as being slightly more probable that living unicorns in Raleigh and Durham, but only slightly. Does this explain the monster that crawled up from the mines in a small Iowa town over a hundred years ago? Was the creature the residents of Van Meter saw some sort of pterodactyl adapted to the dark of the underground? Or was it something else entirely unknown? A glimpse of our deep earth that is still so vastly unexplored? Or, like Mothman, was it something else entirely? A monster from a universe yet unknown? Or a drop-in from another galaxy altogether? Either way, Great distances of our earth and skies remain untouched by human eyes. Perhaps we are simply getting a fleeting peek at how much further we have to go in order to understand the complexity of our world and where we fit into it. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Next up, we'll hear from Chad Lewis, who's an expert on this particular topic, the Van Meter Visitor. He's written a book, and you can find that and more about Chad at his website, chadlewisresearch.com. That's chad, L-E-W-I-S, research.com. Here's our interview with Chad. I am thrilled today because I have looked forward to talking about this case, Mike, for a while. It is so strange and so bizarre. Like, you know, back when we first started this this whole program, you know, we, we started off talking about weird creatures and, and things like that. But um, this one for me, takes the cake, I think, for strange. Next to, like, the Enfield Horror, I think this one is, like, close to the weirdest. Um, but we're, ha- have you heard any stories about it, Mike? This is my first introduction to it, which is kind of, the more I read about it, I'm like, what in the heck? <laughs> the weirder it gets. So we are so fortunate today to have Chad Lewis, who I think is probably one of the foremost experts in this level of crazy. So Chad, welcome. Greetings from Wisconsin. Yeah, welcome back. Great to be here again. Uh, we're so glad that, that you could make it. Um, it. This is, I think, one of the weirdest cases that has, has been out there and explored. And so and very little, I think, is, is known about it. How did you get involved in the Van Meter Visitor? Well, it was many years ago, and I was planning a, another legend trip to Iowa with a couple colleagues of mine that ended up being a co-authors, uh, Noah Voss and Kevin Nelson. And we were looking uh, legend trips some places of haunted cemeteries, a few UFO sightings, and just making our way about. But we didn't really have that one anchor case, that really fun thing to go to. And I had done several books about old newspaper accounts of weirdness based on different states here in the U.S. And I had done a lot of research on Iowa. I just never got around to publishing a book about it. So I said, I'm going to start flipping through these old newspapers. Maybe there's something I missed that would be a fun place to hit. And that's when I started uh, coming across these articles again about this giant winged monster terrorizing the small town in Iowa. So we kind of dropped all of our other plans and said, Let's go here and see what this thing's all about. And that's really how it, how it began from just flipping through a stack of old newspaper accounts I had printed out. It's so strange because you things like this end up in in the, the newspapers and, and whatnot. Like I think back to even, you know, 1909, the, the Jersey Devil craze and, and how, how that went down. Uh, was this something that you thought? You think over the years, I mean, it was made public, obviously. Was this something over the years that was just lost? Or do you think this was deliberately buried? Out of all the places I've ever researched, Van Meter, Iowa, has the worst record of their history than anywhere I can ever think of. Wow. We know that a newspaper existed in Van Meter at that time, but nobody's ever seen one. Nobody has copies of it. 
library doesn't have any copies of it, not just of that year when this occurred, but of the paper in general. So it's that kind of thing where when I went there, I was expecting everybody to know the story. Yeah. To have all kinds of stories about how grandma and grandpa used to talk about it. Maybe even, you know, the great uncle's journal about that time. Um, plat maps of whatever it was in town. And there was nothing. And a lot of the people we spoke with on our original trip there had no idea what we were talking about. And even the newspapers did not do follow-ups on it. So it made this huge splash in 1903. Newspapers from around the country copied the Iowa newspapers and spread this story. And then there were no other follow-ups. It's amazing because you would think at some point, the people of Van Meter would have said, hey, remember that time when the giant bat-like creature attacked our town? <laughs> right. But it was like, oh, this happened. Let's forget about it and never talk about it again. Was it like a, is it just more of a general attitude of, of the people there? Like I know in Edmonton, because this sounds so, God, this sounds like Edmonton. Um, it, it, there's there's kind of a, a an attitude about things here where if it's a little bit too weird, then it, or it's a little bit too controversial or it, whatever category it happens to fall into, that it just gets it just gets deliberately ignored. Maybe, it, do you think that might've been something that's happened here as well? Even though Iowa is pretty conservative and this is a small town in Iowa that kind of follows that conservative bent to it. I don't think it was that we're ashamed of this. It's too weird. It's gotta be put behind, you know, a bar, so to speak. I think it was just simply, it had been so long and that there weren't people around spreading the story, continuing it from generation to generation, that people simply forgot about it. There was a mention of it in the town's history book that they put together of it occurring back in the day, but there wasn't much on that even. There was no follow-up about trying to gain remembrances from people that would have been in town at that time or their family. They just simply threw it in like, well, this is a piece of our history as well. I just don't think they thought it was big news. <laughs> it just seems so weird. I know, like, Mike, you're laughing, too. I, it, I think this is it, it's so strange to me because I, I and I don't know, maybe it's just because my brain is doesn't work like this. My, my I'm constantly, you know, like you, if, if something's weird or strange, I want to know more about it. Like I, I automatically get get inquisitive about it. So it. I don't know. Mike, what do you think about that? Uh, you mentioned that there wasn't really uh, a verbal telling of that story over the years. And, and I wonder if it was what Morgan mentioned earlier. It's like, oh, this is just way too crazy. And we, we'd, it, we'd best not talk about it because then everybody is going to think the entire town is nuts. Yeah, you were right on because when the story broke in 1903, uh, an article came out a couple days later saying that a lot of the people in Van Meter were upset because the story kind of leaked that they didn't want people to go there. They said, stay mm -hmm. away. Don't come here. The story's exaggerated. You're not going to find anything. We don't believe, yes, there's been some weird things going on, but you don't need to come here. And 
whether they were just the best promoters in the world, knowing that when you told people to stay away, they were going to descend upon your city, or they simply truly believed, we don't want you coming here. This is not a tourist attraction, and it wasn't done as a tourist ploy. Yeah, I wonder if there was something going on, and you might know the answer to this, like something going on either culturally or politically or something like that at the time that made this um something that you know they either just didn't want to talk about or or they were trying to you know they were trying to cover it up or or, you know whatever it is um i I kind of wonder if something like that might have been in play somewhere like i mean you look at something like the jersey devil in in 1909 and you know at the time you had you know the 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 beginnings of war at that time um you know there was there was a heightened alert during that time period like and i wonder with with van meter if if there was something maybe going on culturally or politically that maybe a maybe had an influence somewhere in there i don't know what do you think two things to consider one this was 1903 and most of the residents of the area were farmers meaning they probably didn't have a lot of time to spend on this, they were busy trying to survive and keep the family farm. But also in 1903, people in Iowa, even in the small town of Van Meter, would have been well acquainted with stories of weird things in the sky, the airship flap of the 1890s, about weird lights. When you dig through the old newspaper accounts, you can see there were all kinds of stories about just odd lights, haunted places weird monstrosities being born on farms, you know, two-headed cows and all these other anomalies. So they weren't uh, ignorant of these things. They knew of legends and folklore, but somehow this just wasn't collected. Um, For instance, the bank manager ends up shooting out the front window of the bank, the town's only bank at this monster. And yet nobody thought to take a photograph of the shot bank even for insurance purposes or just to calm the public, because I don't know many people that would want to invest their money in a bank where the manager's blasting out the front window at monsters in the dead of night. Yeah. It's so interesting. Like with, you know, with, with, with that mindset, but I I know even from clients that, you know, I've talked to over the years, uh, just with, within the realm of, of parapsychology, the amount of people that don't, get photos it can be staggering like i remember i don't know how many years ago it was um probably a good 10 plus years ago now um i was doing a a a show at a soft seat theater in in uh the south of man it was in kalmar or something like that and the the whole theater was full of incredible activity it was beautiful historical theater and they had installed security cameras everywhere and they were talking to me about all the stuff that was happening and it was visible stuff. It was things that you absolutely could have gone and, and caught on camera and witnessed. And we said, that's awesome. Let's pull all the security footage and we can we can take a look. Well, they hadn't bothered to turn the security footage on. <laughs> and it was like, <laughs> what? <laughs> like you just said, and they're like, yeah, we really want to get this on camera. Well, what are you doing? So like, I, it's funny how people's minds work when it comes to this stuff. Like, why would you not take a photo of this? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I've, I've run into this myself. I think that's part of the overall problem with catch catching or documenting paranormal activity is there's that, that strangeness where 
things will malfunction right at the exact moment that it shouldn't, or people will take a break from something and that's when something will appear. And the same as, you know, them not turning on their security cameras. It just, it kind of happens so many times you wonder if there's something deeper to it. Yeah. It's, yeah. You know, and, and maybe, and maybe that's what it is, is, is there's, there's a level at which people are thinking, if I catch this on camera, what does that mean? Because if we're, if we're telling a story about it, you know, there's always that element where, okay, we're just telling a story about it. You know, maybe, maybe you can allow your brain to kind of let it go a little bit more that, you know, it, you were making it up or you were, you know, maybe I was wrong, but if you catch it on camera or you've got some sort of like, concrete physical evidence. I mean, that really is the next ball game. So I wonder, maybe you're right, if that if if there's a an element of what does this mean for me if if I catch this for real? I can understand people not capturing photographs of things when they're happening. Yeah. You know, often they're fleeting. Um, they're surprised. They can't believe what they're witnessing. It doesn't even occur to them to grab a camera and take a photo. But you would think the next day, for instance, the, the bank, the window being shut out, you think the next day somebody would have calmed down, thought about it a bit and said, let's document this. So I can understand in the heat of the moment, not even reaching for a phone or your camera. But after the fact, when you've calmed down, had some time to contemplate these things, there's really no excuse. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I totally agree. And and you know, I've, as I was saying, you know, I've, I've run into the same issue again and again and again with, with so many, so many cases over the years where, you know, you think that this would, you know, something would be put in place. What was the moment that you realized that this was something more than just, uh, you know, a, a hoax or a made up story? When we went there, I thought this is going to be a fun adventure trip, but it's going to be pretty easy. We're going to get there, talk to local residents, dig up all the historical evidence and find out this was a hoax. Yeah. And, you know, what are we going to do after that? What do we have on the agenda next? Because this was going to be simple to solve. And when I got there and started digging up more of the history and more of the newspaper accounts and seeing the location, it, it dawned on me that, you know, there might be something more to it. I don't know what that more is. Um, but I, I think that it certainly wasn't a hoax when I started digging into how prominent the witnesses were. Yeah. I mean, you had the bank manager, you had the local doctor in town, you had business owners, you had the postmaster, you had the superintendent of schools, all who put their name on the sighting. And back then your reputation was the only thing you had that meant everything. Yeah. So and what did they have to gain by doing that, really? Exactly. They had everything to lose. So when I started finding just the credibility of the witnesses, that added quite a bit. And in a lot of cases, I found that the witnesses that were listed for some of these cases didn't even exist or they didn't exist in that town. So just even knowing that these people were real and they were there made a huge difference. Yeah. And well, and Mike, like you were saying, the idea of, you know, especially in a small town, like as somebody I was born in, in Leduc, Alberta, mm -hmm. which is a, at the time is extremely small town and everybody knows your business. Everybody knows everybody. So if there is some sort of, you know, if somebody decides that they're going to label you crazy, then, you know, especially if you're a, a business owner or something like that, you are risking 
losing your business at that point because everybody's going to hear about it. So it's it's really fascinating to me that, yeah, like there's these these people who were considered, you know, unimpeachable on so many levels that were putting out this these these statements and these stories. Well, while we were there, we spoke with a, a gentleman, interviewed him. He was in his uh, uh, later age. And of course, he wasn't around in 1903. But when he was a kid, he recalled the witnesses. He knew them. They were old, uh, older men at that time. And he said they were the most prominent people. Even when he was a kid, he said they ran the city. If they said they saw a monster, you believed them because they were so well respected at that time. And I think part of the problem with dealing from a case of 1903 is that there are no living witnesses. You know, again, we spoke with a gentleman who was lucky enough to know some of the witnesses when the witness was a kid and these gentlemen were in their last stages of life. So I think that's tricky, too, is digging back so far. There's no chance of speaking to someone who was actually there. Yeah, that makes it it makes it so tough. Mike, you probably run into that, too, with some of the true crime cases. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, I tend to cover uh, a lot of historical cases and find that uh, because there's no no witnesses, some of the real facts just seem to be lost to time. And then there's uh, all this stuff that sort of gets lumped onto it, like the telephone game after years and years. It's It's very, very tough to investigate something that old. I was really hoping that once the book came out and the case got a lot of exposure that someone would come forward with something they found in the attic or their basement that they never really thought to go through grandpa's photos and that they'd have something of the town, even the town, because I would go through with the historians in town and say, Oh, we're looking for, and Van Meter today is only uh, a couple blocks long in terms of its business district, two blocks, maybe four businesses on those two blocks. So that's what the kind of scale you're dealing with, very small town, but no one knew even where some of the buildings used to be or where they were at that time. And that was very frustrating because you would think somebody would have photographs of it and you walk through a lot of small towns here in the United States and they'll have plaques out in front of the buildings as to what they once were and the history of them all well-documented in Van Meter. None of that existed. And it seems like every small town has had like a fire or something that burned the whole town down at one point, (laughs) you know, just things like that have changed the landscape over and over again. And if anything, Van Meter was, more happening than it is today. Back then, they had a couple hotels, they had a few saloons, they had a lot of businesses. Uh, Like a lot of small towns, they kind of fended for themselves, where today, everything in the United States has moved to bigger cities, and all of the local independent businesses in these small towns are long gone. So if anything, it has shrunk a little bit in terms of its commerce. That's really that's fascinating because, yeah, it does. It makes these cases so much more difficult to 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 dig around in. Have you ever heard of anything like this, like anywhere else? Because to me, there there were traits about 
this creature that were so unique and so different. And like I this is the first I'd ever heard of it. And I know there's it's similar to maybe some of the, the pterodactyl sightings that people have had over the years. But even those don't seem to match up with with what they were describing, especially with that great big LED light <laughs> spotlight right. on this thing's head. For many of your listeners who are not familiar with the case, the creature that appeared was said to be about eight feet tall, had giant leather bat-like wings, had a huge horn on its head, and it could project light out of that horn. And it also later in its presence was able to release some weird odor that could erase people's memories. So easy answer to your question. No, I had never heard anything <laughs> like that before. A lot of people equate it or say it's very similar to like the Mothman sightings of Point Pleasant. And in some regard, it is. But yet at the same time, it has so many weird things to it that that's what attracted me uh, when I um, dug it up or re-dug it up, if you will. And I was really upset with myself for quite some time thinking, how did I read these stories and then just leave them in the pile, getting to them later? Yeah, it's so strange because they, as I say, there's I don't think there's been anything like that reported. And and what was interesting to me, especially about the light that they were describing, I mean, this was 1903. I mean, that level of light emission, I don't think that was possible at that time period. Many of the witnesses said that it was nearly blinding. It was so bright and that it was moving back and forth, almost though it was searching for something or possibly someone that it was in, a, in an intelligent light, uh, seemed to be under some control of some sort. It wasn't uh, just a flashing light in the sky, a typical UFO that it seemed to have some intention behind it. And that was extremely weird in 1903, which is what caught the attention of several witnesses, because as far as we know, all the sightings were at night. And the bright light is what uh, really um, grabbed people's attention because it stood out from the rest of the darkness. So you just said it might have been looking for something or someone. Um, I it and that sort of triggered something in my brain. I'm I'm wondering if there were anybody in that town uh, who were uh, doing any kind of occult practice at that time, and maybe. Uh, <laughs> summoned this thing by accident you know is there any story about any kind of um i don't know occult practices in the town at all at any point i didn't find or i should say we didn't find any but there certainly could have been along those same lines a lot of the townsfolk of the time thought it might be some demonic creature of some sort mm -hmm. and others thought because they were coming out of this old abandoned coal mine on just right on the outskirts of town was that it was something that the uh, coal miners had dug up and released from the depths of the coal mine. Like, oops. Yeah. Something like the descent, the, the TV, uh, the mm -hmm. movie, if you've seen that horror movie, yeah. very similar that there's these things that have been breeding down below in the coal mine and that they certainly were released uh, accidentally. But others thought it was a demonic creature or even 
Satan itself mm. that was there in town because it was so scary. We should start calling it the Balrog of Van Meter. <laughs> it's, it's interesting, though, and it brings up that question, you know, is is this something that's physical or non-physical? And I, I know there's been a lot of debate uh, with with things, you know, similar in, in that regard with things like the Jersey Devil and and whatnot, where, you know, they were it was fired upon. Uh, I know in the Jersey Devil case, the Napoleon's Napoleon Bonaparte's brother fired upon it and the cannon just the cannonball just shot right through it and it was fine and it just kept flying do you think that it's it's something like that that this maybe this isn't a physical thing that maybe this is something that's that is more non-physical I'm really torn on this question because four of the five nights at least uh, the five nights we know of where it appeared in town four of those five nights it was shot at by several people on the fifth and final night shot at by an entire posse around the old coal mine. <laughs> yeah. And many of the newspapers said that a lot of these shooters took deliberate aim. They were crack shots. It was within 10 to 15 feet of them, yet it had no uh, impact on them. And I always joke that either these, this thing or what became these things were either impervious to weapons or these were the worst shots in Iowa. Different. Because they couldn't hit anything. Um, so at that at that level, you think, well, it couldn't have really been here because we don't know of any known creature that you can shoot it dozens, if not hundreds of times, and it'll have no effect on it. But at the same time, it was said to have left footprints outside of the bank, giant three-toed prints in the mud, which the town was said to have taken at least one cast of this footprint. So it did did leave seemingly some evidence like a, a bear or a moose might leave behind. But yet at the other end, it's displaying these supernatural abilities that no known animal seems to have. I guess, though, I mean, when you look at you look at other cases of things that seem to be like just more non-physical, like I even think about uh, certain hauntings and, and things like that, like there there is there there is a lot of evidence and, and whatnot of of non-physical things being able to manipulate the environment um so that's to me it's not quite as quite as odd and even in the cases of, of dogmen for those who who believe in dogmen um you know footprints have been found like i think of the beast of bray road with lee hample's field um and that they've you tracked down you know, these five-toed paw prints and and things like that and yet those don't seem to be physical either like it really brings up a lot of questions and i, I had this we had this conversation actually uh with with ken gerhardt uh, about this um where he was of the assumption that maybe this was some type of of projected thought or thought form or something like that that was that was a, a partially physical uh, or at least could could manipulate the uh, the physical environment um and i mean i i don't know where something like the the van meter visitor you know would have would have begun or where it would have, have come from but uh, he's another critter that i think begs that question like is you know is there something to the idea that some of these creatures that people are seeing are, are these thought forms it certainly makes sense with the van meter visitor because it's able to elude capture, it's able to elude gunfire, it exhibits supernatural ability to erase memory, to produce its own light, to uh, move about in speeds that, again, no known animal is uh, able to duplicate. So I think there are many things about this. And a lot of people tie this back to ufology, that 
Today in the UFO field, we're used to hearing people claiming of missing time or erased memories or screen memories that are implanted. But this was 1903. If this story was a hoax and it was made up, the person who made it up was about 60 years ahead of their time from what we would now consider, you know, the field of ufology. Mm-hmm. It's it's interesting too, like the when you're saying that uh, you know, they were reporting that this this thing was you know erasing memories and things like that. I would love to know, and it's too bad that this is not deeper in the records because they obviously didn't seem to be able to keep them. Uh, but I would love to know what their basis was for saying that, like what the witnesses were experiencing, um, you know, and if that was the case, like if they're saying, you know, okay, it's a race memory, how do you know it's a race memory if it's erased? Like, <laughs> I have questions. <laughs> One of the most fascinating parts is that the creature is sitting on a what appears to be a telephone pole sleeping in the middle of the night. And one witness sees it and he goes over to his window and his name's Ovi Whitey, owned a hardware store, uh, prominent businessman, and it's sleeping there and he sees it sleeping. He can see it moving, heaving up and down and he takes deliberate aim and shoots it. And that when it wakes up, that's when it releases the strange odor, almost as though it was a defense mechanism. And when this odor hits him, he claimed that he couldn't remember anything beyond that point. Um, again, how he knew he remembered the older hitting him. I don't know. The newspaper never got into it. But at the same time, it appears as though this thing, even though it didn't attack anyone, it wasn't harmful that we know of outside of its physical appearance being creepy and scary and terrifying. You know, it wasn't harming anybody, but it started out very mundane with just a, a weird light in the sky in the town. And then night after night, it seemed to progress into more and more bizarre things, almost as though it was feeling out the town to see what it could get away with or saying, well, this wasn't weird enough. Let's ratchet up one notch and see what happens. Now I'll add a mind erasing <laughs> smell to this scenario. <laughs> You know, the bright light wasn't enough. The giant bat-like creature wasn't enough. What else can we do? And then by the fifth night, when the townspeople saw this creature joined by another one, this time a smaller version of itself, whether it was the female gender of the species or maybe an offspring, I don't know. But then on the fifth night, there were two of them that spread out into town before coming back to the old abandoned coal mine. So it seems like it's this progression night after night of weirdness continuing and uh, morphing over that entire week. The physical adaptation part it fascinates me because, like I was saying before, I was, I was kind of having a similar conversation with, with Ken when we talked about uh, when we talked about Dogman, because there's elements of of that creature in those stories as well, where people are reporting um, different fur colors and, and things like that, where it's like... It, that's a that's an environmental adaptation like fur color is directly related to that and you know here with fan meter visitor we've got a very similar phenomenon where it's like okay if this is assuming this this did come from something like the coal mines the light makes sense as a as a physical adaptation to the environment mm-hmm. um you know and same thing with with the smell if it's you know releasing like a musk or like you know basically like a almost like a skunk um you know that it's got these these evolutionary 
traits to it, which is so strange and not necessarily something that you'd associate with something non-physical, if if that makes Mike, what do you are what do you think about that? <laughs> so so odd. <laughs> I'm just trying to wrap my head around this whole thing, like what exactly it was and why it was there. But uh, the more we talk about a coal mine and that kind of thing, I'm wondering if it was uh, maybe even placed there, put there years and years ago to, you know, imprison it. I, I, I really don't know. It's It's so bizarre. And throwing it back to this flesh and blood is that once it was shot at on one of the evenings and released that odor that wiped out Ovi White's memory, it awoke a, a man named Sidney Gregg across the street who was sleeping in his building. And he went over to his window and he saw this thing descending the uh, telephone pole using its beak like a parrot might to stabilize itself. Oh. And then when it got down onto the ground, it heard the fast mail, the train come rumbling through town. And that spooked it enough where it got down on all four uh, limbs like it was going to attack. But instead, it just spread its wings out, ran down the street, and then flew off toward the old abandoned coal mine. So the only thing we know that it seemed to be afraid of was the loud noise of the train, the engine, the whistle blowing through town. But yet you'd think if it was supernatural and weapons had no effect on it, it could easily just hop off a telephone pole without having to use its beak to guide itself down. Yeah. And what's what's really interesting about that, too, is that scenario, I think, gives us so many clues. There's so many clues in there, like even the fact that it was, you know, it was sensitive to a loud noise. It was sensitive to sound. I mean, usually, well, often creatures that are, um, you know, deep in the in underground and, and things like that are sometimes discovered, you know, with no, like no visible eyes or um, they, you know, they can't hear or they can't, there's, there's something there that's, that's shifted because of their, their need to be in the dark. I think that's really interesting that, it, you know, it was spooked by the train, which shows, uh, you know, a level of, of awareness and a level of, of, danger it's not sitting there you know thinking that it's impervious or you know and and the description is a very solid description of of something like that you would that you would imagine either like a bat or something like that to you know to to have or to to move like um you know it, it wasn't doing outlandish acrobatics or you know or crazy things that you'd think okay this person is completely making it up like the the story is and its movements and what people are describing, like I, when you were describing that, I could see that in my head as an animal. Yes. Unfortunately, they didn't list a great description of it. Um, I get asked quite a bit about what color was this thing? And mm. the newspaper never stated. It could have been pink for all we know. Yeah. Um, we assume it's a dark brown, black, gray, uh, fitting in with the time that if it would have been some obscure or bright color, they would have mentioned that, but who knows, maybe not. But you're right that if you're going to make up a story, I think you would make it up in different ways than the way this story unfolded, that you would have that supernatural element of it, of, you know, disappearing, reappearing, uh, moving in ways that just are unknown and doing other strange things that it's right on that level that is super bizarre, but it's not fantastical or where you say that's embellished or completely made up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And even even that notion of of or that idea of seeing it, 
you know, going down that that pole and, and using its beak. I mean, that that's something, you know, if you're observing a lot of birds. I mean, we didn't obviously there was no Internet or anything like that in, in 1903. You know, I don't know how many people would have known the fact that, you know, birds climb down things that way. You know, how many people in a little town like Van Meter owned a parrot? You know, the fact that they described that gesture and that motion to me is really significant. It is. And it just adds more credibility to something happening in town. What it was, what it is, I have no idea, but something was going on there for it to occur night after night after night. And the longer it went on, it seemed like the more people were paying attention to it. So by the fifth and final night, the newspaper said that everyone in town had every light they could produce, every torch, every light, and they had it going the entire night to try to ward these things off um, because they didn't want to take the chance. But again, as far as we know, it didn't harm any livestock, any animals, or any people, at least that were, was reported. It's, I, this, it's just, this just fascinates me. And, you know, I, I was researching, doing a lot of reading and, and whatnot on this, you know, the phenomenon nowadays where people are you know, seeing these, these strange pterodactyl-like creatures in places like North Carolina and, and things like that, which was the closest that I could find to anything remotely like this, except these things don't seem to be coming from underground. They seem to be, you know, flying in or, you know, they're seen flying over landscapes and, and things like that. And it's from what I can see, like even within folklore, I mean, the closest thing that you're going to get to this is something like a like a dragon almost. Um, like, Have you ever found anything in within the, the folklore of America or or anywhere else that could remotely suggest that other people have seen something like this? A lot of people equate it with the uh, pterodactyl. Mm -hmm. um, others will say it's very similar to the old native thunderbirds, the Piasaw bird, um, and other thunderbird sightings of that area. And but the dragon is very uh, a good description because uh, just a few years back, a gentleman was. Um, sitting out not too far from Van Meter, waiting for his friend to come out from a meeting out in a rural countryside. When he looked up into the sky and he saw what appeared to be this giant dragon flying about. And so he went home and Googled Iowa dragon and the visitor story popped up and he ended up contacting me saying, I think that's what I saw. But to me, it looked exactly like a dragon, but we all know dragons are not supposed to be real <laughs> creatures that once existed. So what in the heck was this guy seeing? Yeah. And what I find so significant about about these types of, of stories, and this is one thing that really caught me about the Jersey Devil, too, Mike, when we were talking to uh, Dr. Lynn McNeil about this, mm -hmm. was the fact that that people are not describing it as, oh, it looked like a big eagle or it looked like a big, that's not what they're saying. They're, they're picking the closest thing right. that they think resembles what they're looking at. And they pick something like a pterodactyl or a dragon. And I, I think that's really unique. I look at it in the, in the exact same way that Morgan was just describing. It's, it's like I told the story while we were, I've told this a few times on the show when I was a kid, I saw something that I thought had Spider-Man eyes standing beside my bed. And later on, uh, I saw a picture of a gray alien, which was like, mm, oh, okay, now it was actually more like that. 
So it's like you're always describing something that is so fantastic. Like your brain can't wrap your head, <laughs> can't wrap itself around what you're seeing. So it just goes to the next familiar thing. Uh, so you can use that as the imagery to describe this crazy thing that you're looking at. Like, uh, were people in Van Meter even aware of things like pterodactyls? I'm, I'm not sure farmers uh, have a lot of education in, in that regard. I don't, I don't know. I agree. And I, I find it interesting that we know that witnesses are pretty bad at estimating size of things. We all are, but that's different than saying an eagle was you know, six feet when it was really four and a half. Mm -hmm. But that's not what's going on with this case. People are saying that it was gigantic, like a small airplane would have, have been um, mm. when it was uh, reported later in, in uh, uh, our time. But they're not misidentifying it from three feet to five feet. They know it definitely was no known bird. It was way too big, whether they estimated at 18 or 20 feet, who knows, but they know it's gigantic. When was that... Uh depiction done the one of uh it holding its wings against its body and and that kind of thing who did that yeah that was done by my co-author kevin lee nelson who designed the cover as well and that came from the bank manager that i told you shot out the front window of the bank mm -hmm. he was skeptical after two nights of this thing appearing he thought it was still some hoaxer or even a bank robber mm. so he left his family unprotected and grabbed his shotgun filled with buckshot. And he went down to the local bank, the only one they had that he managed. And he waited. And about 1 a.m., this bright light was shining into the bank back and forth. And behind it, he could see this giant bird-like creature, much like Kevin uh, drew up. And that's when he blasted out the front bank. And in a weird twist, the thing disappeared as soon as he shot at it. Oh, wow. That the light was gone just as quick as it had appeared. Again, another supernatural type uh, tendency of this creature rather than flesh and blood. But he was a skeptic. He didn't believe it. Mm. And he thought the next morning he'd come out in the safety of daylight and find a dead bank robber or a carcass or blood or fur, feathers from some animal, something. And nothing. And there was nothing there yeah. except on the side of the building. That's when they found these giant three-toed tracks that they took a cast of. And as of today, we have not been able to find that cast if it ever existed. I contacted the Iowa Historical Society, the headquarters in Des Moines, and they were skeptical that a cast from 1903 would have even survived this long, depending on what they used to cast it, what material that it, unless it was taken care of very well, it probably wouldn't have even survived that long of a period. And the, there's this other sketch that was done based on eyewitness accounts um, with the, it has a weird symbol in the middle of its chest. Was that in one of the newspapers or something? I can't remember. Yeah, that was in the Mirror or the Daily Mail, I think. I can't remember which one did it. It was on the vanmetervisitor.com at one point, this sketch. But uh, it's, a, it's a really strange sketch of these bat-like wings, and it's holding the wings uh, in toward itself, and it has like a white head with eyes and this weird symbol in the middle of its chest. I wish I could show you guys. A lot of the newspapers portrayed it in different ways that um, as far as I've been able to find, 
none of the local newspapers had the the fantastic drawings of it but other newspapers would put it in and some had it wrong where you know the doctor ran out and it was said that he had a six shot gun with him but in all the newspaper uh, occurrences it was a uh, shotgun yes this thing that i'm showing you right now oh yeah that's the one that was done by my uh, colleague kevin nelson and he put that on there to kind of signify the ultra terrestrial type uh significance of it that that might be something beyond our comprehension that there was something more to it than just being this giant bat-like creature from the coal mine mm -hmm. yeah it's really fascinating yeah i th this case to me is it just speaks volumes as to what we don't know about the world and because i mean i i don't see any evidence of you know people just you know making it up for the sake of making it up i don't see like i mean to me something happened you know whatever the newspapers got right or got wrong uh something happened with these people because like we were saying at the beginning you know what what would cause individuals that have everything on the line in a small town including their income uh, to come forward with with something like this i mean there's there's obviously something that's that's gone on here now in i believe it's september van meter visitor festival let's talk about it <laughs> what's going on with it this year and tell people about it because it's so cool i hope to come either this year or next year because it's it's so neat Let, let's talk about that a bit a few years back, I think it's seven, eight years ago now, the town decided that they were going to celebrate the history of this legend. Whether they believed it or not, they embraced it as being a cool part of their town's history. So they decided to throw together the Van Meter Visitor Festival, which happens always the last Saturday in September, which puts it you know, right in line with the anniversary of when these sightings occurred in 1903. And as I said, the town is only a couple blocks long in its business district. So you can actually walk from all the locations where they shot at it, they blasted it. You can go in and see the old town bank. It's still there. It is now a law office, but the, the bank vault's still there. And you can see the layout of the building. And then you can walk two blocks out of town and see the old uh, coal mine where the brick and tile factory was and is still has remnant buildings of it there. So they celebrate this where it's, it's so fascinating because the town hasn't changed that much. So you can literally see where they shot at it from. You don't have to use your imagination. And the town put together this festival where it has walking tours, it has speakers, and then your typical festival fair stuff where food, um, you know, vendors and all that stuff. And it's just a lot of fun to be outdoors in this small Iowa town thinking, what the heck really happened here? I, I think that's, it's just so amazing. And I love the fact that this town has embraced this. Um, you know, it's something that we don't see a lot of in Canada, um, where, you know, small towns and, and whatnot, oftentimes they really shelter this kind of thing. And it's it's seen almost more as, as an, an embarrassment than it is uh, something that, that people want to celebrate. And to me, it's so refreshing to see this attitude because, it, you know, this is something that's so unique and, you know, can put these little places who, I mean, I never, ever in a million years would have heard of, of Van Meter, Iowa, had it not been for the Van Meter visitor. A great trend throughout the United States today as more and more towns start to look the same with the same businesses, the same restaurants, the same hotels, 
all that uniformity. Um, they're, they're really trying to expand the uniqueness of the town, whether you have a town with a local history like this or something else, they're really embracing it and bringing it forward. And I think that's what a lot of people are looking for, that uniqueness that you can't find anywhere else. Nowhere else in America that I know of can you find this giant eight-foot bat creature with a horn that will erase your memory or maybe grab you and fly off with you. So <laughs> you're right that Van Meter realizes they have this kind of uh, unique story. And a lot of skeptics say, well, the town, the story must not be credible because they're promoting it and they're trying to make money off of it. And my reply has always been, well, if you had oil in your town, you would use it. Yeah. If you had minerals, you would use it. Why not use a legend as well? You'd be stupid not to promote it. And the nice thing is about about stuff like this, too, is that it's not only, you know, promoting a legend, but it's giving a history lesson of and pres allowing this stuff to be preserved. You know, that, that word of mouth and that continuity is just so important or else it this is how the, like these types of things end up getting lost and you know the history starts to get lost um i just finished a little while ago my my show fantastic beasts real monsters and where to find them and van meter was was one of my one of the things that i i talked about at length and it was so neat to talk to the people at the end because I would say probably 95 to 98% of the audience had never heard of this before. And they came up to me at the end of the show and they were, they were just like, you know, holy, you know, you've really opened our minds to this. This is really amazing. You know, and here they are, they're all on their phone and they're, you know, Googling the festival and they're Googling, you know, and it's like, this is how this stuff gets passed on. And without these types of, of stories, no matter what people want to think about it, um, you know, it, it will get lost because people just lose interest. So I think that's it's just so, so important. How can people get tickets to this festival, Chad? Well, I believe it's uh, free. Just show up. Um, again, it runs all day from noon to six. Uh, the last Saturday in September, which this year is the 24th. Um, and Van Meter is a small town about 20 minutes southwest of Des Moines in the middle of the state of Iowa. And again, it's open. It's a family-friendly affair. A lot of times we have kids go, coming on the tours, especially the night tour, believe it or not. And they're kind of dragging their parents <laughs> who are a little afraid of walking out there in the middle of the night, but the kids seem to love it. And uh, a quick point that you're right, that the history that people get involved with has now spread through Van Meter where more and more people are dropping off their family's history, their documents, their yearbooks, all that to the local library so they can put together a more complete history of the town. Oh, I love that. I love that. I love how I love how this stuff intermingles that way with, you know, with with carrying on um, traditions and stories and and calling people to action in that way. I think I think paranormal and no matter what genre you're in, it, I think it has a way of, of doing that. It really does have a way of, of bringing people together. And I, it's one of the things that I love about it. Um, for, I believe we're almost out of time here, Chad, where can people find you and where can they find the book about the Van Meter Visitor? Best place to find me is just my website, Chad Lewis Research. Otherwise, think of the weirdest legend you can think of and go there and you'll probably find me there. <laughs> and people, you guys get the book it's it's really good and the 
the the case is so fascinating. There's more in there about it than we've got time to talk about today. But um, yeah, Mike, did you want to add anything? <laughs> No, just thank you. And and uh, I, I want to go to Van Meter, but I'm kind of scared to. I'm wondering if those things are going to show up. Again. We'll go together. I'll hold your hand. <laughs> yeah. Last year, I think we lost less than 10 people. So less. you're probably pretty safe. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> as long as we, you know, we got travel insurance, we'll be all right. <laughs> Is that, uh, yeah, that's all we're concerned about now? Well, I like the breathing thing. <laughs> thank you so much, Chad. This has been wonderful. Keep an eye out. Thanks, Chad. Here's Morgan for this episode's segment of Spiritual Health Care. In this episode's edition of Spiritual Health Care, the segment of the show where you get to be the creator and designer of your paranormal and spiritual experience, we're going to tell you about a process called the Swiss cheese process. This is the perfect process for when you want to alleviate the feeling of being overwhelmed, when you have many things you need to get done. This is a process specifically regarding action. First, take a large sheet of paper and write each thing you feel you have to do at the moment. Maybe you're running a business and you feel you've got many tasks to complete regarding your business. For example, you might write, phone the marketing people, update my website, order new business cards. When you have many actions you feel you need to do, some may take days or weeks, others might be little 10 minute jobs, so when you get to doing the actions, take the smaller tasks on first. They might be the ones you want to focus on because they feel a little bit less overwhelming. Each action you feel you have to take is written on the paper and a circle is drawn around it. Then, once all the actions are laid out in front of you, choose the one that feels the simplest. Choose the one that feels the most fun and the most inspired and do that first. Once you complete it, cross out the circle. Then, later, you can pick the next easiest. Pick again the most fun-seeming action and do that. Cross it off your paper. The idea is that the process frees up your emotional resistance around the subject and allows some new momentum to get going. You may find you do several of these little actions in a day, and then you might even become inspired to do a few more. The energy frees up around more of them, which means some of the things that you write out might actually start shifting all on their own. Before long, you may notice the momentum changing and the universe acting on your behalf as you move forward. You need nothing to be happy, but you need something to be sad. Remember, at the end of seeking, all is consciousness. Stay in peace, everyone. Thank you for listening to this episode of Supernatural Circumstances, a co-production of Entity Seeker Paranormal Research and Teachings and Good Egg Studios. This podcast is part of the Curious Cast podcast network. Theme music by Corey Johnson of Catalyst Records in Edmonton, Alberta. You can find out more about Morgan Knudsen at entityseeker.ca and more about me and listen to my other show at darkpatine.com. Feel free to email the show at supernaturalcircumstances at gmail.com. Good night for now.